This episode of Pass the Mic is brought to you by Compassion and Conviction, the AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Stay tuned for a special interview with the authors Justin Gibney and Michael Weir later in the show. And don't forget that you can get Compassion and Conviction, the AND Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement, right now, wherever books are sold. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Always good to be back on the mic with you, man. It feels like it's been a minute. Yeah, you know, it feels like it has, but I was actually doing the math. It hasn't really been that long, but so much has happened in the past yeah. two weeks. <laughs> Look, man, what's going on with you? What's going on with your people, man? What's going on with your elected officials, no. man? Slavery was, was a necessary evil. What's going on, bro? See, I gotta do this because y'all always get y'all always get us <laughs> about Florida. Yeah. And you right. <laughs> you right. But I got I gotta return the favor, man. What's going on with your people, man? Oh, your boy. What's going on? So if y'all haven't heard, U.S. Senator from Arkansas, Tom Cotton. Appropriately named. You know, (laughs) is out here in these streets saying slavery was a necessary evil. Well, in full context, he's saying, as the founding father said, slavery was a necessary evil to Mm. bring forth this union. And that wasn't even the worst quote. That's the one that got passed around on Twitter. But if you actually go to the full interview, which is on the Arkansas um, uh, online, my goodness, this man is talking greasy. Oh my gosh, it's just terrible. So basically he's critiquing the 1619 project as many of course are right. They love doing that, done, man. They right? love that. Which the premise of the project is, okay, let's let's reimagine if 1770 1776 wasn't the quote-unquote founding of the US. What if it was 1619 when uh the first uh Africans were were brought here uh to the coast of colonial Virginia? And so it's 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 almost an exercise in historical imagination, right? But but it has been taken as an attack on the very foundations and character of the United States, which it kind of is, but it's actually very factually uh, applicable. You can verify mm-hmm. this stuff. So anyway, he he out here talking wild, talking talking bad about black women, Nicole Hannah Jones, who who headed up the project and won a Pulitzer for it, by the way. And uh, this is my state, so I'm kind of hot, you know, kind of hot. Yeah, I, I'm looking forward to that Twitter thread because I know it's coming, man. I'm hey, looking forward if, to that. If Tom wants to talk history, we can talk history. And guess what? We ain't I even like got to that. leave the state. Oh, he 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 about to get a history lesson from <laughs> one of his own constituents. Yeah. Oh, I love it, man. You might I need love to hear it. more about that on footnotes. We'll see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Let y'all go subscribe, rate and review footnotes with Jamar Tisby. You gonna hear more about that there for sure. I also want to take this opportunity since this is the first time we've been back since we had a compounded trauma of losing two of oh. our great heroes, uh, the Reverend C.T. Vivian and also Representative John Lewis in a 24-hour span, which was traumatizing and deeply, deeply saddening. I actually was playing with my kids we had just gotten back in town. We got away for a couple of days and 
was playing with my kids and we kind of do this thing where we do a little dance party at the end of, you know, night before we go to bed and, you know, do a dance party, then read, you know, yeah, just kind of getting the kids, you know, getting them tired before we go to bed. And uh, I looked down at my phone and I was on Twitter and I just hit refresh or it just came up somehow and I saw the news and I honestly, man, I kind of stumbled back. Like (laughs) I kind of lost my balance um, because I was knocked I was knocked back by the the idea that John Lewis had passed. And I had seen that C.T. Vivian had passed earlier that day, but it was my son's birthday. So I was just kind of like, man, I don't even know how to process this. And, you know, I was just kind of in and out. But the John Lewis news really hit me. And then I started processing C.T. Vivian as well. And when you when you think about these men of, of such gravitas and these men of such stature, you know, you never think, and we all know that that death is coming for for each one of us, but you never think that someone like John Lewis is going to pass. You never think it's going to be that soon, right? Um, even after he had gotten his diagnosis of cancer, I was like, man, he's going to beat it. Like if he <laughs> if he stared down, you know, the 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 Alabama State Troopers, he's going to beat cancer. Mm-hmm. Like it's just that's just how you think. You know, mm-hmm. these people are larger than life, and it was a really a, a moment of mortality and a moment of just the fleeting nature of life, but also. A, a sobering, sombering moment because our heroes are passing on mm-hmm. and our heroes are leaving us and they're leaving us in very quick succession. Yes. And, you know, to think about that and to think about the leadership vacuum and the void that they leave, it's a sobering thought, man. Um, what did you think, man? Well, I know we were kind of processing it live via text, but yeah. after after that kind of cooled off and, and died down after the night, man, what were you, what were you left with? Man, I agree with with what you said in a sense that cats like John Lewis and C.T. Vivian have been around for a minute and, and, and you know they're old, like you know this cognitively, but on a certain level it feels like they're always going to be there or if not always going to be there, they're still going to be there when you need them. And so um, when you mm. said that, it mm. reminded me of uh, of what Biggie said when he heard that Tupac was killed. Mm-hmm. And he was like, on, you know, Tupac had been shot before, man. And he was like this larger than life figure. And so when I heard he got mm-hmm. shot, I just thought it was just like something he would shrug off again. And then when I heard he died, I just couldn't believe it. And yep. so, he said, I know we had our drama. We had our drama. But man, I can't believe he gone. Exactly. Exactly. And it's one of these things where you it's it it feels like such such people have made contributions so large that they kind of transcend mortality. And it, it sort of feels like they're so important that that nothing would happen to them, <laughs> right? I know we know this isn't true. It's not, but death, death waits for none of us, man. But that's why, that's, no why it sort, that's why it hits so hard. And then of course, what you said, they're passing in so, so, so rapid a succession, right? Like it's all, it feels like it's all happening at once. We know they have to go. But but C.T. Vivian and John Lewis were the same day. Like, does that need to happen? You know what I'm saying? I'm yeah. I'm still. It's not even in the same realm. But I'm still I'm still in pain over Kobe. You know? Right. Right. Can't uh, even believe that was this year. Can't even believe that was 2020. This year. Right. So so all of that's going on. And then the last two thoughts I had were, who are our leaders now? 
And will the faith of these men get erased in the memory of these men? Hmm. Hmm. Talk, talk a little bit more about the last one. Yeah, yeah. That's very interesting. Talk, build on that. So on, in, in the public imagination, you have uh, C.T. Vivian and John Lewis, both as stalwart civil rights activists, not just in the 50s and 60s, but for their entire lives. But they each had these really dramatic activist stance. C.T. Vivian was one of the freedom writers. Uh, John Lewis, of course, had his skull fractured on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and many, many other uh, incidents of, of arrest and activism. And folks like to sort of latch on to that, especially activists, right? But a lot of times they won't even mention that these men were Christian or that their mm. faith led them. Mm. Or if they mm. do, it is just a mention. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, my burden is to understand activists like Lewis, like Vivian, like Hamer, like Wells, like Tubman, like so many others, and not just, not just check the box that they were Christians, right, in our memory of them, but actually analyze their political theology as a form of intellectual mm. history. Mm-hmm. Come on, bro. So Wow. Like, like within the academic discipline of history, there's this subfield called intellectual history that just simply traces the history of ideas, right? And it takes ideas seriously. And so it looks primarily at like speeches and letters and words and sermons of people to put together how they were thinking about something and what other sources fed into that. Who else were they learning from? So what if we did that? What if we took seriously the faith of these activists as a form of intellectual history, studied it in a disciplined way. And it becomes part of the historical canon such that when you mention John Lewis, it's not simply that he was a congressman, not simply that he was an activist, but that he was a Christian whose faith motivated that which we admire so much about him as, as a freedom fighter. So that's seminary I mean. trained, man. My seminary goodness. trained, I mean, yes. And obviously theological a beast. preacher, you know? So what, 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 what are we, are, are we going to have his, his sermons in the historical canon as we remember him or simply the picture of him on the, on the, on the bus during the freedom rides, right? Yeah. And I mean, man, when you talk about C.T. Vivian, you know, Dr. King called him the greatest preacher who ever lived. <laughs> and that's King. That's what King said. You know, if you talk, if you talk about tracing history, I mean, there's such a rich, kind of enveloping and unraveling that can take place. I mean, from from King carrying around a copy of Howard Thurman's Jesus yes. and the Disinherited, yes. wherever he goes, you know, like to him calling C.T. Vivian the greatest preacher who ever lived, to him, these these little things that happen in passing, you know, and just the the ways in which we see the the overlap and the influences, that's a powerful idea and a powerful project. And I think it's important for us as believers, as black Christians, to lean into that. And to proudly state and to proudly remind, I don't really expect CNN to highlight it. I don't really expect, you know, these these major news outlets to highlight the fact that they were black and Christian in their activism. But that's our job, and mm. that's our job to make sure that they never forget it, and that that's the good. people around us never forget. It. And most importantly, that the American church doesn't forget it. If you fail to acknowledge it. They will erase you in the same way because they can't track the lineage. We have a lineage. <laughs> we have a heritage. We have a tradition. 
Mm. And so mm. we don't let people erase them and their faith in their activism, nor us as well. Uh, mm. So I think that's very important in the context. So that's a that's a really good word, bro. Well, I think that lineage that you're talking about is why, and we haven't talked about this much on the podcast, and I don't know how much we want to get into it, but that lineage is why this mess with critical race theory is so frustrating. Yes. <laughs> you know what? Let, let me, let me, let's talk about something, man. Let's talk about something. All right. This is our topic for today because I hope you guys will permit me. I was on Facebook a few days back and I was thinking of processing some things out loud that I've really been ruminating on over the past of the course few weeks. And I have to really give some backstory about this. And the backstory is, man, to be honest with you guys, my inbox is flooded on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And my inbox is always flooded on all of my social medias and then also at my witness email as well, which if you want to holler at me at my witness email, it's Tyler at the witness bcc.com. Okay. Um, you know, because sometimes people are like, how do we get in touch with you? That's the best way. Um, it, it has really always been flooded with people especially over the past six months, Black Christians who are just lost, flailing, frustrated, angry, livid, enraged. And I think back to all the ways in which Black Christians have been erased over the past five to six years, especially Black women, um, of course. And then I also think about the ways in which now we're having to reckon with, again, the, the avalanche of Black death the avalanche of dismissiveness, the avalanche of marginalization. And in the midst of coronavirus, in the midst of the double pandemic of coronavirus, and also in the midst of systemic racism, and also in the midst of, of being erased in, in, in popular politics, erased in the White House, what we are seeing is we are still staying true to the faith. You know, there was this recent Pew Research study, and it it knocked me back. Um, and it was cited in the Chicago Tribune. It says that one in four Americans said that the coronavirus pandemic has deepened their faith. Right? That's good. So one in four, 25%. Mm -hmm. But the study also found that the trend of strength in faith was more pronounced, surprise, surprise, among Black American adults. Uh -huh. Get this. 41% of Black adults said their faith is stronger compared with 20% of white adults and 30% of adults of Latin descent. It's really striking to me that in the midst of everything that we're dealing with, the double pandemics, the reality that we're being erased, we're still holding true to the faith and it's getting deeper. And isn't that the story of Black Christianity throughout all of the American context? That in the midst of slavery, in the midst of Jim Crow, in the midst of segregation, in the midst of the civil rights movement, in the midst of now this new civil rights movement, that what's the big thing? People are saying, oh, the church is being, nobody, people don't care about the church. That's not what I've seen on the ground. I have not seen that on the ground. In my city and in other cities, I have not seen the erasure of the church. What I've seen is that the church has bought into these ideas that people don't want them there. And so we run from these places. Mm. But in reality, it's actually deepening our faith. And people are looking for that. And so, man, I just have these stories flooding my inbox. And I wanted to give a specific word to Black Christians today. And to do so, I want to start by telling a, a story. And maybe I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I kind of want to bring this back. It was my sophomore year of high school, and I was at a sporting event. 
And as you know, some of you guys know, I was in a educated at a private Christian environment, heavily white, you know, heavily, you know, <laughs> white normativity, white supremacy. Let's just call it what yeah, it is, right? Thank you. Uh, you know, white white supremacy, you know, white Christian nationalism, to be more precise with the historian on the line. And, you know, I attended this school and I remember this particular sporting event. I was, it was just a cluster of us watching an event and we were getting ready to participate in an event. So it was just different pockets, you know, you're at a sporting event, people are kind of talking here and there. And there was another conversation that was happening from one of my white friends. He was talking to some of his other white friends. So I was like, okay, this is interesting. So he was kind of going off about a young lady, young black woman within our class who was new, who had just come into the school. And she was challenging our history teacher. And she was basically challenging his ideology and his perspective, basically saying he's erasing an entire group of people. Now, I wasn't there to see this, but it kind of piqued my interest. I was kind of like, okay, what's he talking about? So I was kind of listening out the side. You know how you kind of look out the corner of your eye and you're trying to listen to another uh-huh. conversation while you're having a current conversation. So I'm kind of listening. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. They're really going hard on her. I mean, she's new, so she doesn't know the game. You know, <laughs> most of us, we've grown up in this, so we know the game, you know? And, and then he just basically gets to his breaking point, it seems, throws up his hands and says, I don't know what the big deal is. We gave them their bathrooms. Wait a minute, what? And you know how you know how sometimes you break your neck and then put it back in place. You know, black black moms do this like better than anybody else. Break your neck, then put it back in place. I was like, and so I'm standing next to one of my black classmates, and you know, it's only like five or six of us, right? Just to be honest. And so I'm standing next to him, and so I tilt to him. I said, "Yo, did you hear what he just said?" And he just shook his head, and I'm like. Yo, like I was blown away. Now, at the time, I didn't really have the arsenal of weapons to really push back on that. Like I didn't know what to do, what to say. And I just kind of was like, man, I cannot believe he said that. We gave them their bathrooms. And notice is very interesting. If I had challenged him right there and said, hey, you know the history of race in this country. You know the history of white Christian nationalism. You know the history of slavery as it relates to the American church. He would have said, well, I didn't do that. But he felt confident enough to say, which of course he had heard that at home. Of course he had heard that at a family reunion. Of course he had heard that from his lineage. But he felt comfortable enough in saying, we gave them their bathroom so they should be happy. And as I think back, it's really a microcosm moment of how I came to faith and how I came to think of myself in the Christian American context. I came to think of myself as someone who should be grateful that I had anything. I should be grateful that I'm just free in any capacity. And it's interesting because it connects to everything that I've been feeling because it seems as though there is this constant negotiation in the American church about how free we are allowed to be. Nobody's going to come out and say, we're not supposed to be free. Nobody's going to come out and say, oh no, we should keep them bound and we should keep them subjugated and we should keep them oppressed and we should keep them marginalized. No one's going to come out and say that. But what is, what is the conversation? What are they now moving the goalposts to talk about? They're moving the goalposts to talk about how free we are allowed to be. Mm. Isn't this the story of the witness, Jamar? Isn't this the story of the witness? Mm. When you came on a week after the 2016 election, what did you say? You said, I don't feel safe worshiping in this context, in this environment. And people 
gathered around you and beat you down and ostracized you, marginalized you because you're not, why are you not allowed to say this? Now, right after that statement, what did you say? I remember it as plain as day. I remember it as clear, crystal clear as I can remember it. You said, well, I know that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. I know my faith in the church has not been shaken in that regard. I'm just saying in this particular cultural, socio-ethnic context, I cannot feel safe in this environment. I just have to be honest about that. And you were not allowed to say that. You're too free, Jamar. Too free. You're being too free. Preach. It's, It's how free you are allowed to be. There it is. And as I'm thinking about this, Jamar, it's a cyclical pattern, bro. It is a cyclical pattern. Every two to three weeks after a major situation, a major black hashtag, as we like to call it, a major situation, it's about two to three weeks where people come out with all these statements, right? Racism has no place in the church. This isn't right. We're all one. Come on. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. You cut us all open, we all bleed red, right? That, that's what they say, right? Whatever cliche you want to, it's not a, you know, racism is not a, it's not a skin problem, it's a sin problem. <laughs> that's the favorite. Put it on a t-shirt. And here's the thing about that. These strongly worded statements are always followed up by what I call a negotiation. Because after the sympathy dies down, now it's been a little bit different this year. It's been a little bit different because we didn't expect to see the avalanche of black death from Ahmaud Arbery to Breonna Taylor to George Floyd. And we're in a pandemic, so there's absolutely no way we can get away from it. Nobody can ignore it. There's not enough, there wasn't a lot of sports on or any sports on at the time. We weren't able to go anywhere. Everything was shut down. You can't escape it. You have to face it. And so it's been it's been elongated a little bit, but here's the negotiation is happening. And I want to be very clear about what this looks like. Here's some examples. Guys, all of a sudden now, what's happening? Your Facebook timeline is filled with people who are talking about race. Filled with people. At first, they were saying, I can't believe this happened to George Floyd. They're not going to talk about Breonna Taylor. She's a black woman. They're not going to, they're going to erase her. Hmm. I can't believe this happened to George Floyd. This is wrong. This is evil. And now what's happening? Oh no, now that now that there are people who actually want to structurally change things to prevent these types of things from happening, wait a minute. Because Candace Owens says, and, and because oh, because oh. this conservative commentator says, and because John uh, this guy and this uh, and uh, what? Oh no, 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 no. We can't have that. So now all of a sudden they find all these old quotes, these old videos, and these books. And now all of a sudden, if you look at certain charts. Their podcasts have skyrocketed. Why? Because we need to get someone to answer. No, talk to your community. Yeah, I need to get these people. I'll share this with with these people, with your people. Listen to your people saying this. Jamar, have you interacted with Thomas Sowell? Come Come on, Jamar. (laughs) Have you interacted with this person? Have you interacted with that? That's what you get. That's what you get on your Facebook wall. Why? It's a negotiation. It's a negotiation. Here's another way that this happens. People will be in your inbox and they'll ask you a thousand questions. And at a certain point, you start to realize that they're asking you questions not to really genuinely understand, but they're asking you questions to poke holes Come on. in your framework. Oh my goodness. They're asking you questions trying to say, well, you know, but I mean, I get what you're saying, but are you saying really? Are you really saying that? Is that what you're talking about? 
I mean, yeah, but I mean, well, what would you say to the person who says, if I hear that question one more time, <laughs> what would you say to the person who said, listen, just say it's you, okay? You're not asking for a friend. Okay, just be honest about it. I'm going to free you up, okay? So that's why we can know to, to end that conversation. Don't, don't dance it. around it. it. Come on, guys. And then here's the most prominent example, of course. It is the Black Lives Matter red herring. It is the Black Lives Matter okay. conversational red okay. herring. Where people, here's what they do. They have to come on and say, you know what? Black Lives Matter, but hmm. Black Lives Matter. See, 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 but here's the thing. I can't really get down with the organization. You see, because the organization has these two tenets, these three tenets, these things oh, I can't really get with. And you look at the organization and they... I'm like, well, wait a second. What does the organization have to do with bringing justice for these people? Mm. What does the organization have to do with making sure that systems of white supremacy are not continued in this country? What does the organization have to do with securing our voting rights? What does the organization have to do with making sure that mass incarceration is ended? What does, what does, what does the organization have to do with any of this? It is a conversational red herring. And so interestingly enough, Jamar, it's very fascinating. There are more words spoken from the pulpit about the Black Lives Matter organization, whether or not someone agrees and disagrees with it, than about the systems that produce the need for the organization in the first place. What? Well, hang on here. Why are we getting off topic? And it is a negotiation. It is a negotiation about our dignity. It is a negotiation about how free we are allowed to be. And I want to emphasize to Black Christians as as deeply as I can, as sincerely as I can, do not negotiate about your dignity. Say that again. It is not worth your time. It is not worth your energy. It is wrong. And here's why you feel this way. Some people are like, man, I, I don't know. I'm just feel so exhausted. I'm tired. I can't stand it. Man, I just, I don't know. I just, I, I look at people differently now. I felt like I was comfortable here. I've been serving here for X amount of years. I, I get all that. Here's why you feel that way. Because it is emotionally traumatizing and dehumanizing for you to watch someone else negotiate how much dignity you deserve. That's wrong. That's why you feel it. It's dehumanizing. These pastors with hands in pockets, just like the cop who had his knee on George Ooh. Floyd's neck, just hands in pockets, Ooh. real casual. Ooh. Well, you know, guys, I mean, come on, guys. I mean, <laughs> well, hey, I just, I don't know. You know, I know you guys are going to be mad at me, but I just can't say Black Lives Matter. They are negotiating with how much dignity to your faces. Aren't y'all tired? Aren't y'all exhausted with this? You're going to let them stand in front of you and tell you, listen, you poured out your heart, you cried, you lamented. Come on, guys. We prayed about it. We brought in someone to have a real honest conversation, quote unquote. We held hands at the end. We cried, shed a couple of tears. Come on, guys. You know we can't support this organization. Hmm. We ain't going to say Black Lives Matter. Hmm. Of course. I mean, well, yeah, Black Lives Matter. You know what I'm saying. Come on, guys. Come on. Uh, All right. Well, let's pray. Huh? You are letting them negotiate with your dignity. And you're sitting in these places and they're standing in front of you 
and you're online and you're serving in these environments? Why? How? Why is this not being challenged? And the burden shouldn't be on you. It's unfair that the burden is on you. All I'm saying is don't allow people to negotiate about your dignity and enter into a negotiation. It is dehumanizing and it's this this is this is the thing. It's shaving years off your life. Mm-hmm. Because that trauma exists in your bodies. And when you end up leaving in three to four years, you're gonna look back and say, Man, I wish I would have left earlier. Wow. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do not allow them to negotiate about your dignity. And the reason I'm so intense, and people don't get this, I'm having conversations with people every single day. Every single day, Black Christians who feel ostracized and left alone, and they cannot say these things, and they feel like they have this sense of loyalty that they have to have, and they're frustrated, and they're exhausted, and they're angry, and they're sick, and they can't sleep because every single day is something new in a place that doesn't care enough not to negotiate about that. It's not right, y'all. It's not right. Wow. And I'm tired of talking to people about the same exact thing. I love y'all too much. And I don't care. They can, they can come at me. They can do all the Twitter threads and tell me I'm whatever. I don't care. I want us to be free. That's what I want. And I'm telling y'all, man, don't negotiate with your dignity. Don't do it. Don't do it. <sighs> Tyler Burns. Mm. I'm sitting here virtually speechless because you just narrated the past seven years of my life. You put, man. You put words to all that I've, every single example that you gave. I can tell you a story. I've experienced it. And I know I'm not the only one, which is why these words are so important for us to hear. And I love how you talk to Black Christians. I love how you're unapologetic about it, how you're forthright about it, and how we didn't even know we needed the words until you spoke them. That's how it feels. What, man, what all this reminds me of... I think we really need to explore this tactic of the enemy that he's using yes, in these call conversations. It out. Call it out. Yes. Well, we could call out a few ones. I think I think I haven't talked about this one before. It's gaslighting. Yes, sir. Come on, bro. <laughs> Come on, bro. So let's go there. I had to actually look this up. It's a term because it's kind of a, a weird term on its face. Just the term gaslighting. You wouldn't necessarily know what it means. But in the context of sociology and the ways that we use it now, it comes from this 1944 movie called Gaslight, in which a husband manipulates his wife to the point where she thinks she's crazy. Everything that she says mm-hmm. is happening or that she has seen or experienced, he said, no, it didn't. That's not what happened. I didn't see it. And he does this so much and so intensely that it turns back on her and she thinks she's the one making it up. And so now gaslighting has come to mean manipulation, Mm -hmm. a psychological manipulation Mm -hmm. to make someone Mm -hmm. question their own sanity. 
And that is what white people have done to black people. That is what white people who claim the name of Christ have done to black Christians. Yes, yes. So that when, when we come and we, look, so they sold us a real slick game, right? From the early 90s up to the early 2010s at least, mm-hmm. there was this whole kind of racial reconciliation movement, right? You had the promise keepers, you had the SBC repenting for slavery, you had uh, the miracle in Memphis, you know, all of these things are happening. TBN, TBN was big on this. Yeah. TBN was very instrumental in, in a non most of y'all don't have your pedigree in that space, but in a non-denominational, charismatic, Pentecostal place, you go to Azusa, which I did every single mm. year. That was super multi-ethnic. Yeah. I mean, multi-ethnic, just straight down the line. Tears, hugs, every all ground is equal at the foot of the cross, all of that. And so they sold a good game, right? And so we entered those spaces in good faith. And this is what I need people to understand. We entered those faith spaces in good faith, not because we were naive, not because we were stupid. It's because this is what this is the message they were telling us. They were they were lying to our faces. Mm-hmm. Maybe they didn't know it at, yet. Maybe some did, but we we were just taking people at their word, right? And then we get in there. And we say, okay, dope. So if we're really going to do this thing, we need to change this, this, and this. We need to incorporate that, this, that, the other. We need to have these resources, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, no, that's heretical. That's heterodox. That's 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 not Christian. And then they be inventing words for us. Inventing words. <laughs> they be inventing words to refute us. They use their whole clip, the whole vocabulary. <laughs> then when a teenager gets murdered in Sanford, Florida. By a vigilante. And a year later, his murderer gets acquitted. And three black women come up with the, the hashtag Black Lives Matter. That's when all this other stuff starts coming out, right? Mm-hmm. Then when another mm-hmm. teenager gets killed in Ferguson, Missouri, and the Black Lives Matter movement takes off, they come up with this whole other stuff, right? But in the meantime, we're, we're saying, no, this hurts us. This is not the first time. This is what we've been through. And the gaslighting comes in when they minimize it. Yep. When they deflect yep. it. When they yep. say it didn't, it didn't go down like that. Like, like 1619, that's not, that's, not, that's not a big deal in U.S. history. Right? It's all about 1776. Mm-hmm. And you must be angry. You must mm-hmm. be divisive. And then... Mm-hmm. I'll end it with this. All of that turns out to make you feel like you're the one who's losing your grip on reality. When in fact, you see clearly, they see through a glass darkly and are trying to force that perspective on us. So I can't illustrate this on you know a podcast, but on the Facebook video, I had this little kitty illustration because I had just kids toys around me. And, you know, I had this little container that we use for the kids' toys. And then I had this A through Z, you know, letter grid, like this wooden letter board. And this A through Z wooden letter board is a representation of the things that we have asked the American church to do as it relates to us, as it relates to our bodies, as it relates to justice. And so I said, here's the thing. What typically happens is in an evangelical American context, evangelical church, 
what tends to happen is people will say, you know what? They'll come to a realization. In that two to three week period, they'll be like, man, we should really do more about this. And so then they have all these panels and conversations and private talks. And you know, then they're kind of like half asking you because some of them are real slick with it. They're like, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't, I mean, how, I mean, are you, do you think we do this? Or, I mean, well, I mean, you can be honest. I mean, oh, you, you, uh, uh. <laughs> and so they ask you without asking you. So they try to get you to be honest, but you know, it's not a safe space for you to be honest. Y'all know what I'm talking about. I'm describing some of your experiences. So here's the thing. They come to this realization. And so you got this container and you got this letter board, right? So they're trying to put justice and the things that we've asked, the things that they haven't even really studied yet, the things that they haven't really done the work on yet. They're trying to put it in a container where it doesn't fit. Mm. And so when they try to put justice for our bodies in a container that wasn't constructed to handle it, what do they say? Well, it's y'all's fault. It's not us. Come on, man. Now you know, and, and here's 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 a slick way they do it. This is another way that they negotiate with your dignity. They pit black people against each other in a multi-ethnic church context. Watch this. You gotta hear me. Hear me, y'all. They pit you against your people in the same congregation. They take the quote unquote safe ones and weaponize them against you. Mm. Mm. They take the older ones who are tired of having this conversation and want to move past it because they don't want to relive the trauma that their grandparents put them through. they like, you know what? Let's use, why can't you be like mama so-and-so? Wow. Why can't you be like Mr. He's cool. I mean, come on. Why don't you, look, why don't you talk to him? He represents us. Why don't you talk to him? Just have a conversation with him. Have lunch with him. Sit down and Skype with him. Zoom with him. And they weaponize you. And so here's the thing. When it doesn't fit, it's your fault. Not the container, not the ethics. They don't look at reimagining what ethics looks like that values black bodies and centers them in the context of an American state that has brutalized and vilified and marginalized them and exploited them and killed them and destroyed their culture. They don't look at that. That would be too much work. That'd be too much like, right. So here's how they negotiate. They just give you a little bit. They just give you one letter off the board. Let's wash your feet. Come up here, young man. You see this young man? You see him? You know, there's, there's, there's more in common that we have than apart. And then sit down, young man. Uh, you know what? This is what God calls us to. He calls us to wash feet. Mm. Not a dry eye in the room. Yeah. Oh, man. Wow. And here's why I'm I'm going at that so hard. Not because that's not a wrong, that's not a inherently a right gesture. Not because it doesn't show, it can't possibly show humility. It's because if you're going to do that, then you better follow it up with substantive changes in the structure of your church. Otherwise, you are lying to us again. You're selling us a bill of goods. You're playing with our emotions. You're re-traumatizing us. So if you don't have any intention of following up with true substantive change, don't negotiate. Man, let's just hold hands. Come on, guys. Let's bring in so-and-so. Okay, this is another thing. They weaponize safe black speakers. So they bring in safe black speakers and they weaponize them against you. 
So then they spend money, get this, they spend money to bring in this one black person and it benefits them. But here's the thing. Now they basically gotten out of spending thousands of more dollars to do the necessary work to hire a consultant to come in and do an anti-racist audit. They've, they've gotten out of doing the thousands of dollars it would be necessary to come in and actually redo some things on the inside of their church or set aside a fund that's going to go directly to black people in the community. They're not going to do that. They're just going to bring in one speaker. Mm. It makes them look good. They get a big audience. And it's a fraction of the cost that it would have been to actually make change. Wow. So-and-so is speaking. Y'all like him. He good. Yeah, he real good. He's exciting. They weaponize them against you and they are negotiating with your dignity and not intending to do anything. Do they know this? Now, here's, here's the thing. Here's, 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 here's the thing about that. I think some people don't know it, but in, in the context, you got to get this, Jamar, in the context of the American church, the church has been run like a corporation for so long Oof. that a lot of this stuff starts to become damage control, mm. not repentance. You ain't repenting. You, you, you controlling damage. You controlling the fallout. You ain't repenting. If you repented, you will be willing to make a statement and you will be willing to do whatever is necessary to make the people who you have harmed whole. You're not doing that. Damage control. And here's the question. So the question is, no, the question is not what will make you whole. The question is what will appease your outrage? Wow. They're counting on you getting fatigued. They're counting on you getting tired. The numbers are in their favor. They got all the numbers. They got all the time. They got all the resources. And they're counting on the five black families in the church not being able to sustain a revolution. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I'm trying to get y'all free. What y'all want to do, man? What y'all want to do? You didn't tell what y'all want to do, man. I'm tired of it. Graduate course, man. Look, I'm trying. I'm trying to get y'all free. This is for y'all. I'm telling the reason I'm not negotiating with my dignity. The reason why I'm telling y'all not to is because I love my kids too much to teach them that that's how they let other people treat them. I love them too much. What you allow and what you negotiate, your children will be fighting for the rest of their lives. You want your kids to deal with the same thing you dealing with? Nah, bro. Hmm. Uh-uh. I'm going to call it all out because I'm telling y'all, it's not a game. They killing us. They are killing us in the streets and we having to watch it and then go explain it to people who ain't willing to do the work. And then these the same people that preach in a real powerful game about the Holy Spirit and transformation and salvation and sanctification, but it can't touch none of their cultural ethics. Wow. Miss me with that. I'm trying to get y'all free, man. Y'all want to be free or not? If y'all want to stay in that system, it's comfortable. It's safe. Trust me. It's nice. It's cushy, man. It's cushy. You're going to be good. You're going to be good. Your finances are going to be taken care of in a lot of cases, man. You're going to be a part of a thriving, growing church. You're going to have all the resources you want in many cases. I, it's, it's, if that's what you want to be, okay. That's cool. But I'm telling you, you are worth more than that. Nah, you're worth more than that. 
You are worth more than a negotiation, a high stakes negotiation about your dignity. Think about your kids. Think about the people who are coming behind you. Think about your spouse. Think about the people in your circle of influence. Think about the people who are watching you. I'm telling you, bro, I'm I'm not, not playing with this no more, man. Yeah. We I've heard too many stories. Yeah. It, I've it. internalized too much of it. Hmm. And pe- I got people on the phone crying, weeping. I don't know what to do. Hmm. I got people saying, man, I just wish you could talk to this person. I got people saying, man, I don't know what to do. And somebody, I, my friend is still in that environment. I have people saying, man, can you have a conversation with it? Man, I don't know what to do. I when is the negotiation going to stop? Man, and I think it's important to, to draw spiritual parallels, right? So if we look at in the Bible, Luke chapter 19, as a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus is known for defrauding people. He's known for that. Yeah. That's part of his job. He's known for economically exploiting. Meets Jesus, has a radical encounter. Here's what happens. After the people, notice this, the people say, hold up, Jesus, you don't know about this dude. Jesus, you go into his house? That boy wilding. Zacchaeus stands up, says, no, no, no. Here's what I'm going to do. I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to pay it back four times the amount. I'm going to make you whole. Better than you were before I arrived in your life to mess it up. Wow. And so what's the frame? What are we talking about? Truth's table gave us the frame. With reparations now, repent and repair. Repent and repair. Repent and repair. Okay, you, you cried. Thank you. You washed my feet. I appreciate it. They clean now. <laughs> Stand up and tell me what you are going to do to ensure that the next 10 black people who come into this church aren't going to be traumatized the way we were. Mm. Otherwise, man, keep it. Save it. Save it. Can we talk- We've been lied to too much. And here's the thing, y'all. And this is the last thing I'm going to say, and I'm, I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> here's the thing, y'all. They are counting on you giving up. They are counting on it. They are counting on you accepting the terms that have been set out. They are counting on it. And I'm listening to Z Johnson last week. And I'm listening to Ali ask her questions. And I'm hearing the pain in her voice as she's having to relive this whole situation. They are counting on us not having outlets that will give us gain and equip us with what's necessary. They're counting on us spiritually flaming out. They're counting on us making a mistake. They are counting on it. Don't give it to them. Don't. Do not accept the negotiation. Be for, choose freedom. Choose the freedom that Jesus has purchased and bought for you. It is holistic in total. It is the beautiful shalom. It is the spiritual transformation of your soul and the liberation of your body. Choose that. I'm going to stop talking. We need to stop right there. There's a lot more to, to chew on. There's a lot more to build on. There's a lot of pathways that we can take. But you took us to church. 
And we need to just let that sermon rest in our spirit. And I'm thinking in particular of black Christians, right? We just, some of y'all are on the fence. Some of y'all are on the edge. Some of y'all are wondering, you've been gaslighted so much. You're like, if I leave, what does that say? What does that mean? Don't negotiate your dignity. I'm not telling this you what is, to do or what not to do, but we're not like that's. A, I thank you for saying that. I'm not telling you what to. do. I'm not. I'm just saying, yo, I love y'all so much. Yes, yes, that's. Cool. I don't think y'all understand. I don't think y'all understand, man. I don't think y'all understand. It was transformative for me after having been in a white Christian educational environment mm. to find out that the voices of my people were louder and stronger and more powerful than any other voice I had learned in my Bible classes or my history classes. It was transformative for me to find out that there were people who understood and felt the same exact pain when they heard, hands up, don't shoot, no justice, no peace, Black Lives Matter. It was transformative for me. I can't describe it. Some of y'all know what that feels like. It's transformative for us. Y'all think this is a game to us. This isn't like, man, this isn't lucrative for us. Man, it's transformative when we stand and enjoy justice, trying to figure out, yo, are we going to actually be able to pull this conference off? When we stand up there at Ebenezer in Chicago at the Joy and Justice Conference and we look out and it's a sea of people who really, truly love What's happening in the room? Who really, truly can vibe? When I'm sitting across from people at lunch at this conference, when I'm sitting across from a crew of young men who are part of a football team, and they sitting up, they saying, yo, help us understand this. And I'm able to look at these men who look just like me and break it down, break down that God values their bodies, that God created them intentionally that God loves them. I'm able to point them to make the scriptures come alive. Y'all, y'all don't understand what this feels like. And then y'all going to have to leave this environment and go back to a place that don't care about you? Man, who would I be not to warn you? Who would I be not to take what I felt? and tr- My heart burns when I'm around y'all. It bur- Y'all don't understand. And I'm here to tell y'all, you deserve to be free. And I don't care who calls me what name. Let them come. It's Matthew 5 around here. Blessed are you when people revile you. They did the same thing to the prophets. I'm in good company. I'm good. I want y'all to be free. And I'm pleading with y'all. Don't negotiate about your dignity. We done, we off that, man. Because it's going to happen again and again and again and again. Well, hey, I know this is a lot to take in. So let's take a quick break. When we get back, I'm going to give you all some practical, liberative tips and next steps. We'll be right back after this.
Well, I'm here with Justin Gibney and Michael Weir uh, of The End Campaign. They're the authors of the book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Now, in the first chapter, Justin, you guys give a core question, which I thought was really helpful. And it's, what are you willing to do for the people who you love? And then later in that chapter, you wrote that our personal Christian witness should always come before the win, the political win. How do Christians practically synthesize these two ideas in our political engagement? Because it seems like sometimes we want solutions so badly. We want to protect those we love so much. We want to care for our neighbors so intently. Yet it seems like within the political process, there's this sense in which you have to win. And there's this polarization and there's this adversarial nature that's kind of baked into the political process today. So how do we synthesize Yes, what are we willing to do for the people that we love, but also recognizing that the witness has to come before the win? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, and I think you see this in the Bible throughout, just people overcorrecting or, or doing, you know, thinking they're doing the right thing and then going too far. You even see some of that in the Pharisees, right? They were coming at a, a out of a place where there was so much idolatry. So what did they do? They went too far in the other way, in the other direction, became legalistic. It, it, it hits on something that I love from C.S. Lewis that really just changed the way I view things. Lewis says that the enemy sent errors and pairs, that he'll use our dislike of one thing to send us not into the correction, but into the opposite error. And I see that so much in politics to where, man, I dislike Trump this much. I dislike Pelosi so much that I'm actually going to go into the other error instead of actually correcting what we're supposed to do. And so I think the Bible forces us to be humble, even in even in when we want to help our neighbor, even when we want to do the right thing. It forces us to be vigilant and to always be seeking the gospel because, and always saying that it's not me who's making the change anyway. So I do have to follow certain guidelines and I have to do it a certain way because I'm going about my father's work, not my work. That doesn't mean make it any less necessary for us to do it, but he's actually the one doing it and we're serving him. And so when we change our perspective, it doesn't make me go any, you know, it doesn't make me less passionate. It doesn't make me uh, go any less hard, but it does make me apply some different principles. And I can't hate somebody else or allow somebody else to throw me into uh, to sin. Yeah, that's really helpful. And, and Mike, I would love to hear you as well talk about this idea of, of e- emotion versus strategy, right? The emotion versus policy, um, which I think you have a particular insight into because you know, the place where you were in, you know, in the previous administration, you saw this firsthand. What do you think about this synthesis between the emotion and also the strategy and how Christians can enter into that without succumbing and submitting to the process itself. A few things I've seen. One thing that's critical here is, and it happens with Christians a lot, because our values and our motivation is moral, we tend to approach politicians where if they do what we think they ought to do, then of course it's the right thing to do, it's a moral thing to do, that I'm not gonna clap for you, I'm not gonna, you're just doing what's, what's clearly right, And if they don't do what we think they ought to do, then it's depending on the situation, embattlement, there's a lot of anger, there's a sense of betrayal, there are all this. Instead, we need to be engaging politicians and the political process strategically, like you said. We need to do so understanding we live in a pluralistic context. There has to be persuasion. There has to be looking out for other people's interests, which includes how they look at things. Well, we can't just decide for other people what their interests are. We have to understand that we're trying to move a people along to a certain way of seeing things. And then I'd say, you know, a bunch of people have had this, this idea, which seems counterintuitive, but I believe that Christian political engagement has to be tinged with a level of ambivalence about the means 
that level of ambivalence that recognizes that politics in the end is not ultimate. It's a, it's a prudential area where especially public policy is full of unintended consequences, is full of, uh, as, as Justin said, thinking you're pursuing one end when you're actually advancing, not, not just failing to meet the need that you're trying to meet, but sometimes making the need that you're trying to meet worse, that we engage in politics understanding that, we, that we're only going to use means that are faithful because we don't prioritize the ends above faithfulness. Yeah. And that's because we understand sort of sort of what's happening. We understand our role. We understand what's going on. That, that's just of vital importance. In the short run, I think people can get caught up in the moment. We're worried about helping people. We're worried about serving people. And we're worried about our communities flourishing, not just in the short run, but in the long run. That is so helpful. Well, gentlemen, the book is Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. Justin Gibney, Michael Weir of The End Campaign. Thank you so much for your work and thank you for doing the hard work, the difficult work of giving us a framework for faithful civic engagement. We appreciate it. This episode is brought to you in part by Baker Publishing Group. Most of us don't want to spend our lives being time wasters, space takers, binge watchers, or game players. We want to be difference makers. But maybe we make changing the world a little more complex than it really is. Making a difference isn't measured by a viral post or a name on a building. It isn't determined by a following or a fan base. Want to make a difference? Focus on just one person at a time. That's the secret of the way of Jesus. In his newest book, One at a Time, Kyle Eidelman invites us to better understand the surprising habits of Jesus and the power of small things done with great love. He challenges true disciples to fully commit to the unexpected Jesus way of changing the world by loving people one at a time. Baker Bookhouse is pleased to partner with Christianity Today to offer a special discount on your copy of One at a Time. Visit bakerbookhouse.com by February 28, 2022 and use promo code one That's O-N-E-2022 to receive 40% off with free shipping. Let me give you some practical tips, man. Let me give you some liberative tips. All right, you're like, man, I can't leave my church. All right, cool, cool, cool. Let me say this again. I've talked about this a little bit before. You need to go to your church. You need to write an email. You need to ask what is the policy for dealing with racists in this body. If you are in a multi-ethnic church, there needs to be a policy. If someone responds in racism towards you, catch this in person, by a text, by a messenger, or on social media. What is the policy? Follow-up question. Am I going to be, if this happens to me, if this happens to my child in student ministry, if this happens to my child in kids ministry, if this happens to my wife, if this happens to my husband, is the burden of confrontation going to fall on my shoulders? Am I responsible for confronting this person? Because here's the thing. you This isn't just some sort of random dispute that we're going to work out. No, this is trauma to my body. It's emotional trauma. I need you to understand the power dynamics. I'm at a power disadvantage. Am I going to be the one that bears the brunt of going and negotiating my dignity in person, interpersonally with someone who has harmed me? Give them a chance to answer. It's a fair question. Who are the mediators? 
This is a question to ask them. Who are the mediators? Who are the outside sources that don't care about your title and how long you've been here and who your parents are and how many members you got and how much money is in the bank account? Who are the outside mediators that are black that are going to come in and advocate on my behalf, that are going to come in and monitor this interaction to make sure that you are not harming and traumatizing me? so that you will not gaslight me in these meetings. Who's my backup? What is this church doing to promote cultural intelligence among its leadership and its staff? What books are you reading currently to unlearn the patterns that have clearly existed in white Christian nationalist circles? Is there a fund available so that me and my family, considering that there may possibly be an opportunity where we will, or may possibly be a situation where we will be harmed and traumatized racially, is there a fund for racial trauma counseling? Is there a fund for therapy? Is there a fund for a retreat for me and my wife? Is there a fund for the people in positions of power? How much money is going to the unlearning How much money is going toward the unlearning of white Christian nationalism? These are just questions you can ask. These are practical. And I'm not saying, yo, you drop them, they don't have an answer, you walk out. That's not what I'm saying. Man, give them a chance. That's what you feel called to do. Give them a chance. And if if it is in, you know, if they receive the word of God, if they receive and hear your heart, if they protect and care about you, they will receive it. And they will say, hey, we don't have that to our shame. They will repent to you. And then they will work to repair. And for some churches, repair don't even cost anything. It's free. It costs time, effort, and concern. It costs work. And if they are not willing to work on your behalf, why why do you trust them to care for your soul? Why? Again, we're not telling you what to do. I'm just asking the question. Why? You deserve freedom. So I gave you some tips. I gave you some stuff. Listen, we want you to be free. We love you. This is why we called ourselves a black Christian collective, knowing all the trolls was going to come for us. Y'all should see our inbox. Y'all should see what people say to our faces. It's a cesspool. Look at our comment section. Look at what people are talking about. Do a, do a search on Twitter. It's incessant. It's a cesspool. We know it. But we care so much about your soul and we care so much about the freedom and the liberation of your body. No, the thief has come to kill, steal, and destroy. Jesus came so that you might have life and have it more abundantly. We believe in that. Don't negotiate with your dignity. That's all I can say.